Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Hello and welcome to a new episode of New Books in Islamic Studies, which operates online through the New Books Network. I'm your host, Sher Ali Tareen. For each new episode, we talk to an author of an exciting new book in the broader field of Islamic studies. Claire Pamant's book, Comic Performance in Pakistan, The Bhand, is a fantastic new book centered on the Punjabi art of the Bhand or comic performance. Pamant explores the history and present of the Bhand and Bhand artists through a thoroughly interdisciplinary lens that engages performance studies, ethnography, history, and the study of religion. In our conversation on this wonderful new book, we talked about the pre-colonial Islamicate and colonial history of the Bhand, the way in which this genre complicates the boundaries of Hindu and Muslim folk art, ways in which the Bhand has disturbed and unsettled class and gender hierarchies in Pakistan, the political work performed by the Bhand and the Bhand in the era of satellite television. This lyrically written book on a long-running and hugely important tradition of Islamicate humor will interest much scholars of Islam, South Asia, anthropology, and performance studies. Here now is my conversation with Professor Claire Pavant. Hello, Claire. How are you doing? I'm very well. Thank you, Ali Sher. Uh, thank you so much, Claire, for your time and for this uh, uh, wonderful and really important and interesting uh, book. Really thoroughly enjoyed uh, reading it and really opens up uh, a, an important topic that uh, about which not much is known. So I think your book has really made a very important intervention. We have a tradition on the New Books Network, uh, Claire, that our first question is always biographical, where we're interested in learning more about the journeys of our authors. So I was wondering if you could share a bit uh, with our listeners, Claire, about how you became a scholar, how you became interested in Pakistan, uh, uh, and in the sort of the uh, uh, comic uh, forms of expression in Muslim societies, and uh, how did you get to write this particular book? Thank you. Well, thank you again for bringing me onto this program. I think it's really important in the work of bringing work to a, a larger audience. Um, I think I think beginnings are always uh, slippery. I came to scholarship as a theatre and performance practitioner, um, and I wear both scholarly and practitioner hats, which are often interchangeable in my work. Um, Alas, I don't have my own performance history of clowning as a practitioner. Um, Coming out of my MA in dramaturgy at Goldsmiths London, I was working in applied theatre, a lot of Boal and political activism, uh, and also as a dramaturg, sometimes director, working a lot with young British South Asian writers like Carly Theatre, Birmingham Rep and Waterman's um, through these companies and organizations that at that time around 2003 uh, were, were giving um, a lot of space to the development of, of new work, um, um, particularly of a multicultural um, bent. And it was around that time that I got this phone call from the British Council um, of an opportunity to visit Pakistan with a young writer um, aimed at connecting cultures. Um, And this was for a really short five-day visit, so limited in its scope. And while we were there, we heard about Eve Ensler's vagina monologues going on in the capital. And at the same time in the press was the female dance band on the popular Punjabi stage, which at that time was at its peak. But any conversation about that with the theatre practitioners we were meeting 
prompted wholesale dismissal. Um, so not it, it, it was it was kind of impossible to find out really what was going on in the popular theatre at that time. Um, we were largely plugged into parallel theatre makers who had formed in the 1980s in resistance to General Zia's Islamicization policies. And Boal and Brecht, practitioners I was very familiar with as a practitioner myself, um, uh, their uses of these practitioners struck an immediate connection with my own work. And at that time, Fawzi Afzal Khan and Eugene Van Oven had given some space to these, the, these practitioners of the parallel theatre. But otherwise, there was little scholarship and certainly nothing that could explain the scripts of legitimacy, illegitimacy um, unfolding in the discrepant stages of Pakistani theatre. So these questions began scratching uh, at, that, at that time. And I think at that time, the parallel theatre appeared heroic to me. I, they'd been fighting censorship. You know, I'd been doing some work um, in British theatre around censorship bills which had hovered over the British stage until um, the late 60s. Um, so the, the fights for censorship around General Zia's period um, were, were of interest. Um, and these companies of the parallel theatre had taken the folk, which was a nomenclature for anything indigenous, um, suppressed as the story unfolded through them, through colonial modernity and lack of state support and how outright cultural hostility. And they'd kept it alive, um, was, was the narrative that, that, that I was being given. Um, I went back to Pakistan through the British Council and worked with one parallel group. But like what has been said by Rustam Barucha and also uh, Aparna Darvadkar um, of the Ipta movement in India and the theater of roots, um, the folk seemed likewise to be figured as some empty vessel uh, that the indigenous practitioners had kind of died out and that there was a reconstruction of these forms to be filled with political content. When I was invited uh, back again uh, to teach, um, I, it was then that I got my first proper exposure to the Punjabi popular theatre, um, taking along with me my students, uh, much to the chagrin of their families. I mean, th this was just considered a low, degenerate and vulgar um, scene. Um, but it was such a huge scene. I, I can't think of another instance um, in the world, in world theatre of recent decades, where theatre has literally overtaken the cinema industry. I mean, this was a theatre that was playing in, in cinema houses and, and other spaces. Um, and whatever had been said of the folk, I found to be here um, with a great energy and connection with its audience. Um, and very much the band at the center of, of that, that theater. So what was a five days residency in Pakistan uh, ended up turning into a full 13 years residency. I was living and working in Pakistan. So it's been a, a long, and immersive uh, journey, which I will not plague you with the details of. But I suppose the band became a project when I was working with National College of Arts um, up in Rawalpindi, a new campus um, opened um, during the, the Musharraf period. Um, and this was envisioned as the first theater program in the public sector. And this was around 2006, 2007. So I was initially involved in, in formulating curriculum and myself and a consortium of theater practitioners, you know, wanted this to be global in scope, but absolutely culturally grounded. So we had a festival, um, a consortium of scholars. There was Jamil Emmerd who came over from Bangladesh uh, whose work at the time was wishing for a world without theatre for development. Um, and he'd done a lot of work on, on um, the 
the fluid transformations of um, various Hindu practices into Muslim contexts, um, uh, which was, you know, a really important inspiration. And Kathy Foley was there, who'd worked on Southeast Asian comedy and clowning. And we had um, the brothers of the Niazi Garana folk musicians, who we, we spent a couple of weeks ping-ponging between uh, different villages um, on the outskirts of Faisalabad and Lahore and also finding practitioners in those um, Punjabi cities. And it was there that, you know, this notion of the folk was very much alive, um, whether it was the storytelling, Dastan Go, certain dance practices and the band um, um, who were ad adapting very fluidly and comfortably between um, um, village performances, neighborhood performances, um, and, and 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 main stage theater stages. Um, and when we presented this and engaged conversation in public. Um, with these artists, I mean, it was so clear the folk was not dead, as I'd been kind of led to believe, um, only resuscitated by the parallel theatre. I mean, it was alive and enjoying other circuits of, of economy. Um, and it was shortly after that whole programme, which was called Desi Matuk, um, um, that I had my first long interview with Amanula, who appears on the front cover of, of the book. He'd also performed in this in this festival. Um, he, he was he was uh, uh, at the time um, he traveled all the way up from Lahore um, to Ravalpindi for a performance, having to travel back all the way down to Lahore to meet his 11 p.m. start show uh, on the on the popular theater stage. But this was a. a uh, a practitioner who was seen by many elite cultural custodians as the culprit of theater's downfall. Um, and while he doesn't describe himself as a band, which has been um, uh, absolutely dogged with low status associations, um, is widely acknowledged among his fellow comedians that he belongs to uh, indigenous Marasi hereditary performance lineages. Um, and we, in this first like big long interview, there was me who had just come out of the library carrying a big pile of books and, and rather nervous about, about this long interview. Um, uh, and he, he, he told me that he, he himself was going to write a book titled Authenticity. And this was a joke at me and my persona. But I guess that was my beginning. I mean, the contested narratives of authenticity hanging over the stage, beleaguered by class and caste, and really trying to um, tell a story that would recover agency of these marginalized um, performers. And so the histories of the below. Terrific. Uh, thank you so much for that. Um, I was wondering, uh, Claire, since many of our listeners may not be familiar uh, with uh, this uh, figure that uh, forms the main center of this book, uh, I, I was wondering if you could introduce our listeners to the figure of the Bharn and of its connection to uh, Sufism and Islamic lit uh, literature and culture. And as part of that answer, perhaps if you could also explain this key category that really binds this book, which is the Bharn mode. Uh, through which you demonstrate the flexibility and the dynamism of this form of folk art. So, uh, sort of a two-part question to set the stage a bit for our listeners. Uh, could you say a bit more about what is the Bhand, uh, how is it connected to Islam and Sufism, and then what is this category of the Bhand mode? Yeah, um, so as a, as a form, um, the Bhand is most recognized um, through wedding performances um, and in contemporary Pakistani Punjabi culture, although the band has all kinds of incarnations across South, South Asia. Um, in the wedding, you have a pairing, a, a male duo. One is the Ranga character, a straight man um, uh, character who, who sort of 
plays the hierarchical figure. And then you have a bigger character who's the kind of wise, witty fool. Um, and um, they often enter a wedding, sometimes invited, sometimes unannounced, almost gorilla-like. Um, and between the two of them and their inscriptions of order and disorder, they locate various paradoxes in their environment. Um, so they might come in and um, notice that Sher Ali is the host of this program and use Casida to elevate um, status, um, uh, the Ranga will, and then the Bigler will kind of begin to deflate that. So there's a play in Riparty, um, Jugets of asserting and debunking, a balancing between praise and deflation, um, which begins to destabilize and play topsy turvy with 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 power. Um, and uh, I look at I, look, I mean I look at this as 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 a mode um, recognizing the transformations which prompted this very project. Um, um, so in the popular theater, the duo might transform into the Chaudhry and um, uh, a low, quote unquote, cast um, Marasi character, a master and a servant, um, um, a, 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 a boy with long hair who's just come out of American education um, and the uh, a, a witty back chatting female servant, for example, um, and and this 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 duo act has connections with many practices in in Muslim worlds. Um, Iran's Ruhozi Siabazi have the Hodji character and the Sia character. There's Magad clowns in Afghanistan, um, practices in Tajikistan, um, and I think probably most widespread um, is the Hachifat and the Karagoj, which Landau has done some work on. I mean, like all the way Egypt, Syria, Turkey, Palestine, Tunisia, Algeria. Um, so, of course, one can say there are universal traits of comedy, like these patterns also emerge in Western circus clowning, Commedia dell'art, right? even Tom and Jerry. Um, but I think in the field of theatre studies, where notions of absence, um, and quoting John Bell here, um, in Muslim worlds that... that, 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 that um, that there is no no theater and performance um, in Muslim worlds really continue to prevail. Um, I, I teach world theater history um, and often pull out these passages, which are super problematic in the main main uh, textbooks of our discipline. South Asia is often presented in textbooks that Muslims arrived and killed theatre. And I, I think um, it, there's, a, there's, a lot of, there's been a lot of interest uh, in comedy post 9-11 um, and these notions of, of absence have really been used to justify a lot of soft power of Western intervention. I, I start the book with um, the sort of spoof documentary, um, um, comic documentary, um, Looking for Comedy in the Muslim Worlds by Albert Brooks, where he's on this uh, pretend mission by the US government to discover what makes 300 million Muslims um, laugh in the region. Um, and this was around the same time that the cartoons of the Prophet um, um, came, came out, um, which prompted a big discourse around absences of comedy in Muslim worlds. Um, so in this film, he goes past the Red Fort in Delhi, and you know where once upon a time there was Raja Birbal, a jester with with um, the 16th century Akbar, uh, but he doesn't mention any of that. Instead, it's this it's this notion of great sobriety. Um, so I wanted to inter intervene and really 
um, point to specific genealogies at play um, that explain for the, the continued persistence of, of these comic modes, um, which are transformational. Um, um, so while in history, the figure of the band is uh, a marginal entity, bands do keep popping up in the historical chronicle. And while you have contemporary bands performing in the wedding um, who are relegated to rather low status designations um, who suggest a kind of revisionist history of a glorious past of a stable court jester, such as Raja Bobel, they will quote as, um, you know, a once glorious status they enjoyed down to a, a um, a modern fall. Um, Sikh rulers uh, are, are brought up in the mix as well. Um, I don't think they, they enjoyed such a stable jester type presence, but Bhans do appear named um, from 14th century Delhi Sultanate right through to um, Bajir Ali Shah in, in Lucknow. Um, and you get this, what I call a play between the centers and the margins. So um, you often find them kind of on the threshold of power. They're sometimes in the court, they're sometimes out in the street. There's a discussion about how they should stay out in the bazaar and not interfere with the, with the court. Um, they don't have any sort of clear place, but, but they're there, they're around. So from there, as, as a comic mode, um, I dig deeper into Sufi moorings of this character that might explain the license of these appearances. Um, and I pull out the comic tropes that undergird um, some of the wise fall figures who pop up in Arabic and Persian. Central Asian contexts, um, um, from Ashab to Balul to Mullah Nasruddin, otherwise known as Jua. Um, and, and this kind of search was also directed by contemporary performers who ascribe spirituality to their work, you know, particularly um, a wedding band like Munir Hussein um, from Lahore. Um, so, so he talks about the the dervish character of the fakir as a fankar, um, the, the, the wandering um, Sufi um, seeker um, is like a fankar, like a, a contemporary artist, um, um, someone who, who doesn't stay in any one place, who doesn't get folded into power and the freedom and abandon in that. Um, yeah, he, he has a lovely quote where he says, whatever comes out of our mouth is a confident prayer. It's like we're talking to, to Allah, a wired connection. So the sense of being connected um, with, with, with the divine of the artistic license in that. And then he in particular also talks about healing. Um, and, and this is a trope that goes back to images of the soul and some of the Sufi wise full um, literature um, of provoking reflection within and the cleaning of the soul. Um, I think there's also connections with Malamati Sufis and, and this also is pulled from some of the contemporary um, anecdotes, you know, taking on the blame, transgressing social norms and, and forming an existential relationship with God, which might invite social opprobrium and, and, and invert um, contemporary, invert various uh, hegemonies and hierarchies, um, but gets its divine uh, it, divine license. And I, I think divine judgment um, is also a strong theme which keeps popping up in the work of contemporary wedding bands. Um, uh, yeah, I, I began my fieldwork proper in 2007 when uh, the 
legitimacy and military actions of uh, President Musharraf were very much being put to question. Um, and so there's this pairing in Lahore who say, Today I went to the hereafter and met Israel. Um, he was wailing and crying, the Ranga says. Why was he wailing and crying? The Bigler says, I asked him, why are you crying? You are the angel of death. God has given you a great duty. You can take life, Ranga. Indeed he can. Why then was he crying? Bigler says, the angel told me, my duty has been taken away from me. The Ranga says, really? Then who has taken it? Bigler says General Musharraf, and they slap. The Chamota slap is used as a leather slapstick to punctuate um, the punchline, but also as if to, to punish uh, the joker. So I think these the, 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 the juggling between mundane power and, and putting mundane power literally in the heavens on, on, on trial um, is... Is, is a strong connection of those um, Sufi lineages which hug back all the way to the Sufi wise fool who hovers between history and legend. Terrific. Now let's continue this theme of the historical uh, uh, narrative or trajectory of uh, the Bhan. And if I could sort of combine a couple of questions uh, uh, to do with this history. Uh, first is, I mean, we've already touched on a, a bit of this, but perhaps you could speak a bit more about the ways in which uh, the figure of the Bhand transforms from the pre-colonial uh, uh, Islamicate South Asia to colonial South Asia. And also, if I was wondering if you could speak a bit about uh, one theme of uh, uh, one of the chapters in your book, which is uh, the convergence of uh, uh, Brahmin and Sufi literature when it comes to the figure of the Bhand. Uh, and how that sort of complicates uh, neat divisions between Hindu and Muslim modes of comedy and so on. Uh, so I was wondering if you could combine those two threads of your analysis uh, in terms of the transition from pre-colonial to colonial South Asia and this convergence between Brahmin and Sufi literature and uh, in, in relation to the figure of the Bhand. Yeah, um, so on the one hand, some forms of elite patronage evidently crumbled, um, you know, the, the emperors and the, the nawabs um, uh, uh, were, were no longer there for the bands with uh, those colonial interventions. But because this was not the only patronage, because the band was not relegated to only being a court jester, it, it didn't stamp out the band's work. But on the other hand, with colonial modernity, you have a great rigidity of class caste constructs. And you really see this vis-a-vis -vis the colonial classifications hold onto Bahans, Marasis, Bats, Berupias, which, which I, I suggest in the historical chronicle um, uh, see all kinds of um, intersections and convergences. Um, but the British, they really tried to fix the band as low. Um, even then, you still see the figure poking around um, and confusing the designations. Uh, so in some of the great you know, caste and tribes manuals, um, you, you get someone like uh, Ibbotson um, in the early uh, 20th century, um, who's ascribing on one hand like a quasi-sacred character, but on the other hand, very, very low. Like they don't know where to put them. And I think there's a, there's a, there's a great account um, from Kashmir of the travel figure, um, of travel writer Walter Lawrence, uh, who who um, who kind of speaks his wrath um, towards uh, this this band uh, figure that he he meets, um, and probably this stems from his own encounter with one. You know, he says that they're not quite sane. He says one was this Muslim who had been a 
formerly a tutor to a high official and was hopelessly given to drinking. He reviled me in the strongest language when I refused to give him whiskey and said that the Iron Age of the Hindus had indeed arrived and he left my um, camp in, in tears. Uh, and this, this prompts then this wholesale dismissal from Lawrence uh, of these degenerate um, characters. But what you see in the text of this is like the band is is really messing with conventional categorizations, like the band is a Muslim, but he's given to drinking, he was a tutor, and yet he's supposed to be really low, and he rebukes the high colonial officer all the while through through doing this. Um, in terms of um, Urdu literature in the late 19th and early 20th century, there's some mirroring of this, I mean, in terms of, projections of crassness, vulgarity, a sort of banishing of the band. But there are other accounts which really romanticize the band and like portray the band as this resistance to colonial rule, a kind of a memory machine who's bringing out these lost liminal possibilities of um, of, of, of mogul rule um, and you have Shower who gives this lovely depiction of an apparently famous band um, in Delhi known as Kerala um, when he gets banished out of the 18th century Muhammad Shah Rangila's court he appears up this tree with his dolky drum like clambering out of the earthly regions of mundane powers to be closer to the creator. And, uh, you know, there's all kinds of liminal and rather ambivalent possibilities. You know, the bonds can appear anywhere, even up trees. So in terms of complicating divisions between Hindu and Muslim modes of comedy, um, I think, what little work has been done on the band in other regions, um, which, as I noted, takes like different contemporary forms. Um, you've got Kashmiri band Pater and, you know, the late Kemu um, practitioner, but also wrote like rather substantial history um, for these uh, band Pater performers, um, posits the band as a Hindu lineage. Um, although many of the performers he was working with were Muslim. Um, and then you've got like work this by John Emig on a Rajasthani band Berupia, um, who, who, who claims uh, Muslim lineages. Um, although the performer he's working with is actually uh, a, a Hindu. Um, and, and I think that itself shows you know, a crisscrossing. Um, and I think the framing of either Hindu or either Muslim has really been used to foster nationalist narratives. Um, so you know, part of my project is intervening in the narrative of Islam as a repressive force to performance. Uh, but I'm also cautious of replicating the kind of hegemonies that have gone on in Indian theater of then, um, uh, glorifying um, uh, Hindu Sanskrit um, roots. I, I don't want to do the same with uh, Islam. And I, I think that someone like Birbal in um, 16th century Akbar's court, I mean, explicitly confuses the, these paradigms. You've got a Hindu Brahmin jester, as he's, as he's often named, um, in a Muslim, um, although the pluralistic uh, religious court of Akbar. Um, so these figures of Sufi wise fools, of Ashar, Balul, Nasruddin, this kind of divine madness and being beyond law, beyond mundane, as a mode to redress worldly authority. On the other hand, you've got in Sanskrit um, uh, plays, and I'm really calling on other people's scholarship here, like the Vidushek, in the, in the beta of the Barna plays, I mean, there's an etymological sharing of the, these particular plays where jester characters do take on Brahmin status. Um, and 
there's there's an implicit modeling it I'm, I'm not claiming any clear origin narrative um but stories evidently flow into each other in literature um you've got virtually the same stories from uh 8th 9th century medina um such as a shab with his honeyed um, tongue who sort of gets the better of his mother. Um, you get the same story replicated um, in Birbal narratives um, of, of, of the jester um, um, using honey to get his um, uppance upon um, Akbar. Um, and similarly, you find the flow of... Um, like Nasruddin stories into band accounts. Um, you know, the wonderful, wonderful story of uh, the, 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 the headstrong um, Timur who's, I think, ha ha having his, um, uh, having some haircut or something and he looks in, in, in the mirror and he sees how he's aging and begins weeping and everyone in the court weeps with him um, and then when when Timur stops Nasruddin, uh, everyone else stops except for Nasruddin who keeps on weeping and when asked why he's told Eric um, you have to look at yourself in the mirror for such a short time but I have to look at you every day. That's why I'm weeping. You find a virtually the same um, uh, anecdote of, of a band um, centuries um, later. So uh, I, I see an active flow. Uh, let's now shift to uh, the uh, the band in uh, Pakistan, and uh, you've already touched on uh, a bit of this when you talked about uh, the. Uh, the, the 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 play in which uh, Musharraf was being critiqued, etc. But I was wondering if you could speak a bit more about uh, the ways in which uh, the band uh, has uh, disturbed and unsettled uh, sort of class and gender hierarchies uh, in Pakistan through performances in varied settings like weddings, but also then more sort of theatres, local theatres, but sometimes even uh, more national theatres, etc. Uh, so I was wondering if you could speak a bit about these performances in these different venues and how uh, the kind of uh, political and social work that is also performed as part of these uh, Bharat uh, comic performances. Yeah, um, so I, I mean, Mushraf does hang over the book. It was very important in the period I, I began the, the work. Um, when I had my first um, full interaction with the you know, real maestro, um, Hadi Munir Hussein um, and his sons, um, they, you know, they were doing, they were doing jokes out on the street. They were playing jugets, um, and it was, you know, where one of us in Shabazz, um, PMLN rulers who had at the time had been exiled out of Pakistan and they were trying to come back in, um, to contest, the next elections and Musharraf wasn't letting them back. Um, and so where have they gone? They've got, they, they went to Saudi Arabia, then they went to London. Um, they started asking all the barbers, um, can you make our hair grow back? You know, it's kind of the, the, the two brothers are, are, are known to be bold and this becomes a symbol of political impotence in the, the realm of, of power politics. Um, and, and all the foreign doctors refuse because their their heads have been shaved off by um, General um, Musharraf. So what appears to be going on here is a kind of you know heralding up of the PMRN um, rulers against um, uh, the, against military might. Um, but then, as you scratch away and. Uh, it took it, it took me some time to scratch away at this. These uh, these would you claim to have been performing once upon a time for Nawaz Sharif and Shabazz Sharif and the PMLN uh, family, um, and they actually were back in in the nineties, um, and so very much like the historical bands, um, they would appear to these politicians um, and they give these wonderful examples uh, and they're still telling these jokes out into the streets around this 
election period um, of the 2007-2008 period, um, you know, so they, they, they go and they, uh, they're there to cheer up the uh, Navasharif father. Um, and they ask, they ask, you know, where does all the food go in the country? It's eaten by Navasharif. And where does all the flour go to this grandson of Navasharif, Saxon Sax? He's a gutter without a cover. So, I mean, there's real political work um, going on here. And um, it, an important part of band performances in in such um, weddings and familial uh, environments is a demand of veil. Um, the award um, given by audience members to these performers. So there's this performative act of sharing wealth when power, um, wealth accumulation um, is, is being explicitly cr critiqued. Um, but these are exceptions rather than the rule. I mean, for many bands who don't have such powerful supporters, they are locked into really rigid class stratifications that have been inherited vis-a-vis -vis the processes of colonial modernity. Um, and so you find bands bursting into weddings and ripping out genealogies that the upward mobile upwardly mobile would prefer to forget. And uh, for those who are really confined to low status patrons and, and live very, very um, poor lives in makeshift tents and slum areas, etc., you know, they're really scoffing at power really from the underbelly of society. I mean, so similar themes, it's uneven economy, um, uh, scoffing at political power, you've got Saudi Arabia, you've got load shedding, you've got a lot of scatological references and a lot of board going on in those performances. Um, and I think that's really also your entrance of the band mode to the theatre, like the theatre um, really up to the 70s was scripted in colonial-esque Eurocentricity. Um, a lot of carryover um, in terms of, of, of the style and the scripts that were being that were being performed um, by by rather elite custodians. Um, and so the band begins like knocking at the door of this theater, squeezing in, um, bringing in local characters and content. And these are performers like Amanullah who don't necessarily belong to band lineages, um, but very much carry the mode forward. Um, so this theater developed full grounding during General Zia's 1980s. And I think that's political. I, um, they, they really did begin to indigenize uh, the, the stage. And as I said, prompted this like rapid um, growth, um, taking over cinema houses, etc. Um, but it's important to note that the band isn't revolutionary. So there, there'll be a, a, a topsy-turvy play with power hierarchies. Um, but the band mode can become deeply hegemonic as well. Um, and so after the 80s, producers began to put um, women performers, and there were earlier precedents for this, but um, they began, they, there was a release uh, dance which had been um, suppressed during General Zia's period. Um, was now kind of being hurled onto the stage. Producers looking to make money um, out of scantily clad women performers, um, shaking up the illicit. Um, and, um, you know, quickly those performers became much more popular than, than the, the male band-like comedians. And so, such as when I arrived in Pakistan, there was this collusion going on between those male performers and the government in trying to ban these women from the stage. Um, and women themselves, and 
you know, this had been going on even Gen General Zia's period, had been adapting the bound mode to insert them into this particular repertoire. Um, so you see, like, women taking on tomboy characters and then outwitting the, the, the male um, comedians. Um, so, yeah, lots and lots of transformations. Speaking of transformations, uh, uh, towards the end of your book, you also uh, talk about the ways in which uh, uh, the Bhand both uh, benefited from and intervened in the uh, emerging uh, sort of uh, uh, erupting uh, Pakistani satellite TV industry that really uh, saw a massive boom in the uh, sort of late 2000s or early 2000s, etc. Uh, I was wondering if you could speak a bit about that. How did this satellite TV industry boom affect uh, the figure of the Bhand and how it became part of a certain uh, sort of uh, 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 television uh, uh, arena? Yeah, um, so this begins in 2008 with the newly inaugurated Pakistan People's Party. Um, and there's this absolute flowering, flourishing plethora of, of television um, channels, which had begun in Mashraf's period. Um, but it became particularly noisy, what many people have called a, a circus, and, and, and pretty hostile. I mean, uh, the PEMRA regulations on the ethical parameters of the media have not, I don't think they've even still set, set in. Uh, it was like a very violent debate going on, um, glasses being thrown around TV studios. Um, and so... Uh, Producers, I think, saw the band as a way of bringing the news and kind of um, finding a comic entrance away from the hostility to bring news to the quote-unquote common people. Um, and with this, they saw a kind of dumbing down of the news, which... Yeah, leads way for all kinds of like simplifications and propagandist messages of the media, um, and 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 using the band to try and glorify certain um, politicians, um, and this was particularly true of Hasbihal. Um, but I think when the band mode works best, and what Sohel Emma did with that program was that he was not going to be confined to simply bombing down the news, um, but actually intervene to complicate the news um, and the media messages at, at times. So what, what began to shape up in that format, which has changed over time too, was that the journalist became the Ranga character and the Bhand became the Bigla character. Um, and through that dialogic interface, there was a contestation of, of the news. And sometimes that unfolded into um, a, a, a politician Ranga and and, and, and the band like Suleiman as the, the Bigla. Um, the television comedy has expanded in proportions uh, which are beyond um, my count at, at the moment. Uh, what we see uh, in this kind of contemporary television comedy um, is that <laughs> it's almost like the band has taken over entirely. Um, the, 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 some of the journalists have been pushed out in, in um, and, and you get these, it's not just one man on the sofa playing a band, you get an entire um, studio um, of, of bands. Um, and that actually gives very little for them to rebuttal from. Um, and as I say, it's not revolutionary. There's ambivalence always in the band's work. I think the current project um, I'm, I'm, I'm saying my way into at, at the moment um, is, is to look at the kind of hegemony entail therein. Um, I'm presently working on uh, Kvajasara, 
hijra um, performances. And you see these um, hijras and quadrasaras absolutely being belittled by some of these male com comedians um, on these on these stages. Um, so, so sometimes it can be um, very politically um, critical, and sometimes it can be deeply hegemonic. So as we're coming towards the end of our uh, time, Claire, you uh, just began talking about this, but I was wondering if you want to say a bit more about uh, uh, what's the next project. You've uh, said a bit about it, but could you do you want to explain a bit more what the next project is? Yes, I would love to. Um, so the next project, it feels an old project. Um, I, I've been I've been working on it for a couple of years at least. Um, I explore another dimension of Pakistan's marginalized performance repertoire through gender-variant communities known as hijras or kwajasaras, a third gender term adopted in Pakistan after human rights hearings of 2009. So this is work I began before the rights hearings, left it to concentrate on my book. Um, and uh, and, then, and then came to it after these rights hearings. So I'm, I'm interested in how performances um, by these communities intersects and rubs against a rather classist human rights um, activism in Pakistan's neoliberal left. Um, and I'm particularly interested in performances of piety by this community and how they transfer embodied community knowledge, identity, serving as modes of activism, and, and also constructing new ethical um, dispositions. So I'm looking across conventional theater, dance, political activism, and religious ritual. I'm looking um, for performances at Sufi shrines, in public spaces, in streets, and, and homes. Um, um, and really looking at how these performances still continue to remain on the margins, despite the emerging human and civil rights um, movements. Comic Performance in Pakistan, Dabhard by Claire Pement, published by Pelgrave Macmillan. Uh, thank you uh, so much, Claire, for your time, for this wonderful book that I think uh, should be read by scholars of South Asia, Islam, Pakistan, uh, uh, performance studies, uh, uh, really a wonderful intervention. So thank you for this, and thank you so much for your time today in sharing some of your uh, thoughts and insights about this book uh, with the New Books Network. Thank you very much. Thank you very much, Sherali. So this was my conversation with Professor Claire Pament on her wonderful new book, Comic Performance in Pakistan, Dabhard. I hope you enjoyed this conversation. And I hope you will also join us next time for another new episode of New Books in Islamic Studies, which operates online through the New Books Network. Until then, this is your host, Sher Ali Tareen, signing off. Take care, stay well, and keep listening to your favorite podcast, New Books in Islamic Studies. Bye-bye now.